you could take your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. We've been in Acts for a little while, and we will be in Acts again this morning. One second here. We can get this to... We're still not getting anything, huh? Try one last... This might work. You just never know with technology, right? I mean, it just you just never can know. Try one last thing. Still nothing, huh? That's okay. We can preach. You know, people preach for a long time without PowerPoint. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> and it uh, looks like we might have to do that again this morning. That's okay. It is what it is, said a wise man once. You know what? Satan must be in these wires somewhere. I tell you what. Take your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 22. We're finishing up Acts 22 and uh, getting into Acts 23 today, which is the last verse of Acts 22. And, um, you know, it is uh, some say that there is a silent majority uh, that oppose the wickedness in our country. Some say that. They'll say, you know, there's a silent majority and there's so much wickedness in our culture today. But there is a silent majority of people who um, just, you know, need to make their voices heard. You know, there are, this country really isn't filled with people who dishonor the Lord and make, uh, rebel against the Lord's authority. Who do, you know, that, that isn't necessarily the case. But, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this this past week. And I, I, wonder, I wonder how you would respond if, if I told you, um, what if there isn't actually a silent majority? What if, what if you, what if what we believe, what if we are actually outnumbered? What if the, that we are not in the majority when it comes to the opinions about morality and the opinions about the truth? And um, to quote the Apostle Paul, what then? What do we do then? What is our response? What should we do? Do we then capitulate to the world around us? Do we bend the knee? Because it turns out the majority in our world, the majority in our country actually does believe the nonsense they're told. Paul actually finds himself outnumbered in many different times. You'll find an outline inside your bulletin that might help you follow along the message this morning. Paul finds himself outnumbered. That's the name of the title of the message this morning, Outnumbered. The mob had outnumbered him in the book of Acts. We've seen him several times. The council in a moment is going to outnumber him. The Jewish conspiracy is going to outnumber him. And then we even see people protecting him, moving him to Caesarea outnumbering him. But Jesus appears to Paul in the middle of this section, and that's where our focus is going to be today. He appears to him and assures him that he would, re- he would reach no- Rome. You may be outnumbered, but when you have the presence of Christ with you, you are in the majority. Because if Jesus with you, it makes a complete difference. Paul defends himself here in this chapter. You might have here, uh, Paul's defense might be a title to this chapter in your Bible. I'm not sure what your study Bible might say, but this is Paul's defense before the Sanhedrin. He has been brought on charges. He has been defending himself a lot. The Jerusalem mob, he tried to defend himself before the mob, and here he is going to defend himself before the Sanhedrin, and soon he will go to fake Felix and Agrippa and others, and he will defend himself again. Let's just briefly talk about where we've been. Paul has finished his missionary journeys and sets his face towards Jerusalem. He wants to go back The Spirit has compelled him to go back to Jerusalem, and the Lord warns him every step along the way, wherever he visits. Wherever he goes, people are are, are warning him, saying, Paul, 
If you go to Jerusalem, there await you there chains and tribulations. Chains where people will bind your hands, tribulations and afflictions that you cannot predict. He knows even that God has told him he will go there, that God's purpose for him still is to go. And so upon arriving, he is ambushed by a mob at the temple. He's taken outside. He's beaten within an inch of his life. He is so close to dying, and he is rescued by the local magistrates there. There's this man named Lysias who's a Roman commander. He rescues Paul from this mob. He, he pulls him out and interviews him. He wants to know why is it that he is being treated this way. He wants to know what's going on. Initially, Lysias decides to whip Paul to, to find out more of what's happening, to torture him so he might get this information out of Paul. And when Paul informs the, the commander that he is indeed a Roman citizen and should not therefore be whipped without a trial, everything stops. And at this point, Lysias decides he needs to find out what in the world is going on with this guy. Who is this man who preaches the gospel message to so many? We see Paul here outnumbered. And when you're outnumbered, you can expect several things. The first thing you can expect is complete chaos. Father, we ask today that you give grace to us as we look at your word. I pray that you would use this passage of Scripture to give us courage to trust you, even though the world may be shaken, even though it feels like mountains are being moved and people are believing delusions and we are very outnumbered, Father. We may be outnumbered, but with you, Lord, it doesn't matter because we are on your side. We're on with truth and we are with you. And Lord, if we follow you, it doesn't matter who outnumbers us. We know that you're in control and you have the power to do what you need to do. So bless us now this morning as we look at your word. I pray that it would work in our hearts and give us the strength we need in Jesus' name. Amen. We see if point number one is simply chaos. We see train, chains and tri- I'm going to have a hard time saying this. Chains and tribulations. I've almost said trains twice now. I apologize for that. Chains and tribulations have awaited Paul. And these are some of the tribulations, the chaos of the mob. But I wonder which is scarier, the chaos of the mob or standing in front of an organized group of people who have bad intentions towards you as well. Let's look at Paul presented in verse 30, chapter 22, verse 30. It says, the next day, so we have a change in time here. It says, Paul, because, or because he wanted to know, that's Lysias, this commander, back in verse 28, it talks about this commander, because he wanted to know for certain why he had accused, he was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds, released Paul from his bonds, and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Lysias wants to know why Paul's speech had caused such an uproar. He wanted to know specifically what was it that Paul was being accused of by these Jewish people. Lysias had understood this was a religious dispute, that they wanted to kill Paul. He had not violated any Roman laws, but they wanted to kill Paul, and he just not, could not let them kill him. He had to find out what was going on. And if Paul had done something wicked, perhaps he could let them kill him, but he didn't know. He wanted to find out what was happening here. So he, he wants a trial before the council, the Sanhedrin here, the council of the Jews the way the Sanhedrin would work, it was a counselor sitting down, a group of people who would act as a kind of judicial court in a specific geographic location. So in this case, the Jerusalem council would meet together with the high priest and the council, and they would meet together and decide things in legal matters as it relates to the Jewish law, the Mosaic law. So he, this leader, commands them to appear, and he presents Paul before them, and he watches Secondly, we'll see Paul rebuked. Paul makes an opening statement in verse 1. It says, Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived 
in all good conscience before God until this day. Now, in this short statement, I think he makes four distinct assertions. First, he's lived out his life, notice, before God, that he has conformed his life to God's will. He says, I have lived my life before God. Men and brethren, I have lived my life before God. God's law made a high priority in his life. This is important for us to consider because if you remember, what Paul had been accused of was downplaying the law. Secondly, he says he has lived with a clear conscience. That was he was not being, nor had he ever been, deceptive in how he lived out his life. Now, that is, a, that is quite a statement, that he has a clear conscience before God at that point. Uh, how many of us could stand before a group of people who were accusing us of all kinds of things and say with a, with a straight face, I have a clear conscience before God? It takes a man of integrity, a man of character to say that, and Paul says that. Thirdly, he says this was being done in all good conscience. That is, that word all is the word in every or all. It means in perfectly good or completely pure conscience. That that there's nothing hiding. And then fourthly, that he had done it to this day, that as he stood before this council, his conscience was clear and he was right before God. And these assertions were too much for the Jewish council. If you notice in verse 2, it says the high priest Ananias, this is not the same Ananias we saw earlier, uh, who, who laid his hands on Paul, neither is this the Ananias who died with Sapphira. So we have like at least three Ananiases in the book of Acts. This is a different one. He's the high priest at this point. It says the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him, stood by Paul, to strike him on the mouth. Now, this is an immediate rebuke. To strike Paul on the mouth, he probably did not see this coming. To, to hit him in the face on the mouth meant that he was, they, were being accusing, they were accusing him of lying or blasphemy because they were striking him on the mouth, saying, what you're saying is improper. And, and this was a really harsh blasphemy charge. Now, notice Paul's reaction to this, this charge. He is shocked. He has not been officially tried for anything, has not been found guilty for anything, yet he has been slapped, he has been struck in the mouth, and is so surprised. Verse 3, Paul said to them, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, and you sit and judge me according to the law. Do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? I love that rebuke, by the way. Calling him a whitewashed wall. Isn't that amazing? One of you five-year-old kids is going to try that on your brother tomorrow. I would not recommend that. Don't, don't, don't use that phrase. What, is it, what does he mean, a whitewashed wall? It sounds kind of nice. I mean, he's basically saying you're, you're, you're a freshly painted wall. Why would that be bad? Well, there's a couple of reasons that would be bad. Because he's using language that was similar to how Jesus talked about scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. When Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs. Which indeed appear, which indeed appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of what? dead men's bones. When Jesus confronts the the Pharisees about their self-righteousness, he says, you look like a tomb that's been painted. It's beautiful on the outside, but you don't want to look inside it because inside it's full of dead people's bones. He says in verse uh, 27 of Matthew 23, uh, you you indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. But Paul was also probably using, there's this this image in Ezekiel. Ezekiel the prophet used a similar language to talk about wicked leaders who had in their days seduced the people by telling them everything was okay. There are are leaders who don't want you to know when bad things are happening. I don't know if you knew that, but there are people out there. There are leaders. And what they want to say is, don't worry, it's okay. And meanwhile, everything is burning down. 
Everything is falling apart. And they say, don't pay attention to that. You're okay. Everything's fine. And this is the picture that Ezekiel uses in Ezekiel 13. And because I don't have my PowerPoint, we're going to use our fingers and we're going to go back to Ezekiel and look at this passage together. Would you look at there with me? Ezekiel chapter 13. Now, that's in the Old Testament, right in the middle of your Bible. Uh, you'll, you'll find the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 13, starting in verse 10. So why don't you turn there with me? Ezekiel 13, starting in verse 10. The danger of these leaders telling them everything was okay was they're giving a sense of false security. They're telling people not to worry when there actually is something to worry about. Not to be concerned when there actually is a danger. Look at me in verse 10, Ezekiel 13, 10. Because indeed, because they have seduced my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And one builds a wall, and they plaster it with untempered mortar. There's the picture. Say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar that it will fall. There will be a flooding rain, and you, O great hailstone, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Verse 12, Surely when the wall has fallen, will it not be said of you, Where is the mortar with which you plastered it? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury, and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger, and great hailstones and fury consume it. Verse 14, So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar, and will bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall." And you shall be consumed in the midst of it, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the image, most likely, that Paul is referencing when he calls them a whitewashed wall, that there is a falseness to what they are doing. There is a fake authority behind what they are saying. They are presenting themselves, and there is behind what they are presenting a falseness, and it will be revealed by God himself. Turn back with me to Acts If you go back with me to the book of Acts, we'll pick up our story where we left off. As Paul rebukes, he also rebukes because of the injustice of the whole thing, that they have slapped him, they have hit him without actually coming to any kind of of judgment. He has not even been convicted. And the people confront Paul, they rebuke Paul in verse 4. Those who stood by said, do you curse or revile God's high priest. They, they rebuke him for saying this to the high priest. Now, Paul does something very fascinating here in verse 4. I'm sorry, in verse 5, is that Paul stops saying what he said. He backs down. He, in fact, realizes that he should not have said what he said. See, Paul's not Jesus. Remember this, right? We're allowed to criticize some of Paul's decisions, some of the things he did. He sinned just like all of us sin. He acted out of anger sometimes, so, so he, he is not perfect, and here is a great example. He probably should not have said what he said. He rebukes them like this. He's angry with them, and when he realizes he has reviled someone who has a, a status as high priest, look at verse 5. He says, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it was written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler in your people. He didn't realize the person who struck him was, was this person of a high priest. He realizes it's inappropriate for him to say this to a high priest, even if the high priest acted this way. He quotes Exodus 22 by saying, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of the people. So he is, he is saying, I'm sorry, I should not have said this. I should not have cursed you. But there's two possible ways of understanding. As with Paul, he's a very smart man. There's two possible ways of understanding what he's saying here. 
The first is I've been out of town for a long time. I didn't know that this was the high priest. He's been gone. He's just coming to town. He didn't recognize him. Uh, perhaps he didn't recognize uh, the high priest and his face, or he didn't recognize who he was. The second one is, I can't believe a high priest would actually do something like this. Like, you're not acting like a high priest. I don't recognize you acting like a high priest. Either way, Paul is backtracking a little bit, and he is confronted over this, and he does not, he, he does not hold this. This is a, va- a valid criticism of them, but he, he does back up a little bit. And then look at verse 6, when something amazing happens in this, in this, uh, uh, in this scene. Because he, just, he perceives that in this group are two different kinds of people. Verse 6, when Paul perceived that one part of the council were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out to the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Now, Paul's ministry had been, his preaching had been focused on the resurrection from the very beginning. Each one of Paul's sermons, you trace them, they all go to the resurrection. They often go to the resurrection, but normally at the end. Normally he preaches for a long time, and then he gets to the emphasis of the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ raised from the dead. But where does he start here? He starts with the reality of the bodily resurrection, not just a future resurrection of the righteous people, that one day we will all be raised, but that Jesus himself was raised. And then going straight to the the main point here and talking about the resurrection of the dead, Paul sees an opportunity to divide this group. Because one thing you have to understand, and most people, I think, in this group, some in this group might know this. I don't know if everyone does. There are many different groups in the, in the Jewish uh, faith at this time. There were the Sadducees, and, and there were the Pharisees, or as we see here, the two main groups. Now, there's an easy way to remember with the difference between these two. See, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. They believed in supernatural things like angels, which we hear describe, see described in a minute. They just believed in miracles and angels and supernatural things, and they were very strict keepers of the law. The Sadducees were more of the elitist group. They were more of the, 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 the uh, more uh, rich, often, people. And, and, and these, these people did not believe in the resurrection, which made them sad, you see, right? Okay, you got it. So, so there are Pharisees and there are Sadducees. The word Pharisee means to divide. And it has the idea of being very careful with the law, and we see that. And normally when we think Pharisee, we think bad, right? You look, if I say you Pharisee, you think, oh, that's a terrible insult. You realize that in this culture, actually, Pharisee was not a bad thing. Pharisees were the populist people. They were the, the populist party. They were the people that everyone identified with. They, they worked hard to keep the law, and they were very careful about keeping the law. They, they upheld the word of God, but they went too far, and they made all kinds of rules. Jesus confronted them about this. But Paul here does not distance himself from the Pharisees. He identifies himself as a Pharisee. And in seeing the division here, he actually sees an opportunity. He talks about the resurrection of the dead because the resurrection is vital. And friend, the resurrection is central to the gospel message. Look at verse 7. When he had said this, a dissension or division arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees that the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees confessed both, and there arose a loud outcry. And the scribes and the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, for if a spirit or an angel had spoken to him, let us not fight against God. What an amazing turn. He goes in there. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are all looking at him. And he, by saying this one thing about the resurrection, he gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees to look at each other and to be angry with each other. 
And then they start fighting with each other, and he kind of stands back. And then, in fact, they begin to, to pull at him or to, to, uh, to compete over him. He's not out of danger because with this great dissension comes such a uproar that Lysias becomes worried that Paul was going to be pulled to pieces. Look at verse 10. When there arose such a great dissension, the commander, fearing Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down, take him by force from among them, and bring him into the barracks. There comes a great fight over him. And I don't know exactly what the fight was about, whether they're like, he, he belongs to us. We want to protect him. No, he belongs to us. We want to kill him. I don't know exactly how it went down, but it was not pretty. All kinds of chaos. Imagine being Paul in this scenario. Imagine being Paul in this setting, completely outnumbered by this. You were just come from a mob outside. Now you're in a mob inside. And in this point, Paul being dragged in front of religious leaders, being confronted, there's so much unknown. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. All he's been told is that chains and tribulations await him, and he's experienced so much challenge. He just told these people about his conversion experience on the road to Damascus, where, 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 where God, where Christ showed him up and, and brought him into submission. At this point, I, I think he's, you know, he's had these interactions with Christ, these big moments. I don't think he needs a big show of power. What he needs more than anything is the comfort from Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus comes and comforts Paul in this time of severe, un, the time of unknown. Look at me at verse 11. Christ comes in and comforts him. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for you have testified for me in Jerusalem you must also bear witness in Rome. Why does Jesus say, be of good cheer? He says, be of good cheer because Paul needed comforting. Paul was not in a happy place. After being almost torn apart by the mob and almost torn apart by religious leaders, he might look around and say, do I have any friends? Do you have anyone who will protect me? I am on my own. I am exposed. I am outnumbered. Everyone in the world hates my guts and wants to kill me. Like, what am I going to do? And Jesus comes to him and he says, be of good cheer. The first thing I want you to notice is that Jesus knows where you are. Jesus knows where you are. You might feel like no one else in the world knows where you are. You might feel abandoned by the world, but Jesus knows where you are. God's presence is with us. He says, the Lord stood by him. As he was kept in the barracks as a prisoner, Jesus saw fit to visit with him, and he could not be held back. Jesus can be with you no matter where you are. There, there was no soldier who could keep Jesus out of the barracks where Paul was. Jesus went to him because Jesus knows where you are. He had not lost track of Paul. He had not forgotten about Paul. He had not missed him somehow. In fact, Jesus is with us too. He has not lost track of you. He has not forgotten you. He has not missed you somehow. He gives you his presence with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life every day. You realize you, you have the presence of Jesus with you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, and Jesus knows what you're facing, secondly. You see that? As you have testified for me in Jerusalem, he talks about being misunderstood. You know, Paul was misunderstood by people. People thought he was disobeying the law and all these things, but yet, yet God knew that he was testifying of him. Jesus saw, and Jesus knows what you're doing. He knows what you're facing. 
He knows the people who are in your life who have put pressure on you, who are making your life difficult, who have, who have challenged you. Some of you have had faced tremendous challenges from work, tremendous challenges from other, other areas of life. And, and, and God knows where you are. God knows what you're facing. And Jesus has a plan for your future. Notice he says, you have testified to me in Jerusalem. You will also bear witness in Rome. What a encouragement. Can you imagine the encouragement this is for Paul, who does not know if he will wake up the next morning? To know now, not only will he wake up, he's going to make it all the way to Rome. Hey, he knows one thing, he's not in Rome right now. That means between now and Rome, he's got to get there. And until he gets there, God promises he will be alive. God has a plan for him. Christ had a plan for Paul. Jesus communicated this plan directly to Paul. God has a plan to go to, for him to go to Rome, and he doesn't know how he'll make it out of Jerusalem, only that he would. Our comfort comes from Jesus, who knows where we are, who knows what we're facing, and has a plan for our future. And here's the thing, Jesus does not always tell us explicitly what his plan for our future will be like, but it should be comforting for us to know that no matter how dark the situation looks on the ground, he is there. He is with us, and he is using the circumstances for our growth and his glory. Third, last movement here, there's movement I call conspiracy. Look at verse 13. There's two conspiracies in this. First, a plan to be, that was conceived by Paul's enemies in verse 12. And when it was day, this is after Jesus had visited Paul, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They made a strong vow, a very strong vow. It was as if they were taking a curse upon themselves. That word oath is the word anathema. The idea that they were taking a curse upon themselves if Paul was not killed. Notice how severely outnumbered Paul is by this group. How many people we got who are going against Paul here? More than 40. You see? It says more than 40 people came together. And, and, And these people came together to form this plot this conspiracy. These are probably some of the same men who had caused trouble by ambushing Paul in the temple earlier and caused a mob to form. Verse 14, and when they came to the chief priests and elders and they conspired with them and they said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you therefore gather together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him, and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. The Jews had decided to kill Paul, and they approached the leadership of the Jews. They said, here's, we need your help. Pretend like you need to interview Paul one more time. Make an inquiry of him. As you bring him in, we're going to sabotage him from behind. Uh, Before he even gets in there, you will have plausible deniability, and we will take care of this problem that we have. They were working outside the bounds of law, and they wanted the help of leadership. But Paul was outnumbered, but God's sovereignty shows up in a remarkable way because this plot, this plan was uncovered by one of Paul's relatives. God often uses very unlikely people to do great things. That's a theme in the Bible. It's like the most unlikely people. Abraham and Sarah are like old, old, old. I can say that because I don't think anybody here is quite as old as Abraham and Sarah were. And yet God says, you're going to have a baby. And through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Wow. Why would you pick like the old people to do that? That doesn't make any sense. You pick a a young person to have a baby. I mean, I'm speaking just truth, right? We all know this, right? Young people have babies. Old people don't have babies. But God picks the unlikely people. God picked the Apostle Paul, who was the worst 
uh, offender uh, when it comes to hating the Christians. He really hated the Christians. He went around rounding them up, and God said, I'm going to make him one of my missionaries, and he's going to suffer for me. He's not going to make other people suffer for me. He himself is going to suffer for my sake. God uses unlikely people, and here God uses a boy, an unlikely person. Paul was completely outnumbered without any idea of this conspiracy that was happening when his nephew, his sister's son, discovered this plot. We don't know how this happened. We can only imagine, but likely this young boy heard something he wasn't supposed to hear. Look at verse 16. When, Pete, when Paul's son, I'm sorry, Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. And I love this storytelling by Dr. Luke here. The pacing slows dramatically, and we have the same thing told to us several times to stretch out this story and to build the suspense as we find out what happens. Look at verse 17. We're going to read down through verse 22. Then Paul came out or called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring you this young man, for he has something to say to you. Then the commander took him by the hand, went aside, and asked privately, What is this that you have to tell me? Finally, finally the commander, Lysias, comes out with this young man, and here the plot that has been formed. Verse 20, he said, The Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, saying, Tell no one you have revealed these things to me. Lysias was told something very important. He was going to be used by a, as a tool by the chief priests and the elders to bring about Paul's death. And I have to imagine that Lysias noticed the danger was not just about Paul, but also about himself about his own leadership, and about his own authority. He could not let these men use him this way. So the plan was thwarted by God's, your blank there is God's minister. God's minister. You might say, why are you calling Lysias, this commander, God's minister? Well, Romans 13 says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. The authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, Whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. There is something I want to say for just a few moments here. And that in this, this is an excellent illustration in this story of competing human governments. We have the human government of the council, and we have the human government of Rome. And in the irony of ironies, who is it who is doing wicked, wickedly in this, in this story? Who is doing the wicked? Who, which, which government is acting wickedly? It's the Jewish people, not the Romans. In fact, it is the Roman Lysias who is seeking to do what is good and protect life, whereas the Jewish religious authorities who should know better were not doing what was right. They were seeking to do evil. So here we have the submission to proper authority who is acting properly. The government has a responsibility, not just to us as the people. The government has a responsibility to God to do what is right. And when the government does not do what is right, they are acting outside of their realm of authority. 
And here are the, the Sanhedrin as a governing body was acting outside of the realm of their authority by acting to try to plan and plot a deceptive, destructive murder of one of their people. And God used another authority, another human authority here, the Romans, to save Paul's life. Here I've called him a minister of God, notice to do what is good. So we have a second conspiracy starting in verse 23. He called two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night, provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. This is very significant for several reasons. That's a lot of men to protect one guy. Can you imagine being Paul? You're really outnumbered again, but this time for good. Like, you've got a lot of guys on your side. That's amazing. All these spearmen and horsemen, and they would leave at the third hour of the night. Does anybody know what time that is? Probably around nine o'clock. Like, it's getting dark. You need to go now. This is a dangerous situation. You take all these men and you go now, go quickly. And there was an understanding that Paul was in imminent danger. And Paul was not even forced to walk. He's given a horse to ride. He's given his own ride there. And the governor here, who I call an agent of God, does what he's supposed to do and protects the life. And then here we have the full letter that would have accompanied this group as they traveled. And we'll finish with this. Verse 25. And he wrote this letter, the following manner, Claudius Lysias, that's where we understand his name, to the most excellent governor, Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them, Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Notice how he doesn't talk about how he almost whipped him. I think that's so fascinating that, that Lysias is like, I'm going to skip over that part and just not tell anybody about the fact that I almost whipped him when he was a Roman. Let's just talk about how good I am here. So that's what he does. Verse 28, and when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council, and I found out that there he was accused concerning questions of their law, but he had nothing charged against him deserving the death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, which is about halfway to Caesarea, a place where they could stop for the night before they made the rest of their trip. I'd like to stop here and ask you a few questions. First, the title of the message was Outnumbered. Paul was outnumbered. We will be outnumbered. We might even face conspiracy against us, but we should know this comfort. The Lord is with you. The Lord is with you no matter how outnumbered you are. He knows where you are. He has a plan for your future, and the most important thing you can do when you're outnumbered is reflect on the God who we serve. Take your Bible one last time, Psalm 46, and we'll close here. One of the most important things you can do when you're outnumbered is to reflect on the God whom we serve. And in Psalm 46, which we read at the beginning here, we see this passage. We read this actually in our scripture reading today. Psalm 46 in verses 10 and 11. I want to point your attention to the end of this psalm. The psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The excellency and the greatness of God. Be still and know that I am God. Know my power, God says. Know my majesty. But then notice the next phrase. It's not enough just to have a powerful refuge somewhere. 
that's out there. Look at verse 11. The Lord of hosts is what? With us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. I want you to meditate on this fact. What does Jesus' name given to him in Matthew chapter 1? His name shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. When you're outnumbered, Jesus is with you. Should never forget that. No matter how bad it seems, the Lord of hosts is with you. And if you have the Lord of hosts, if you have Emmanuel with you in your heart, in your life, you are never outnumbered. does not matter how many people are arrayed against you, how many hate you, how many try to despise you and tear you apart. Like the Apostle Paul, he could be confident knowing that God had ordered his steps. Jesus was with him. Father, we ask your blessings on us today. We are so in need of your presence. I I know that there may be people here who don't have your presence yet because they've not trusted you as Savior. They're still in their sins. And so for for them, Lord, my heart is burdened that they trust you, that they believe in you and accept the forgiveness given because of the cross. But for those of us who have trusted you already, who have received that forgiveness, who have had our sins washed away from us and who have been purified and made righteous before you because of your work. We thank you that we have the promise of your presence, that though we are outnumbered, we are never truly outnumbered because we have you with us, and you're our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer and friend. Thank you, Lord, for ordering our steps and guiding us. May we trust you as we go through these dark times and times of joy, times of difficulty, whatever we face. We can know that you're with us every step along the way. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to give you a second to deal with God. And as I've mentioned several times, there may be some of you who cannot know the presence of God because you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior. And I'd like to give you the opportunity, as often as I can, to remind you the gospel message and the truth of it, that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, and died on a cross, a cross he did not deserve, so that your sins, your many sins against him and against others, would be paid for perfectly once and for all on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, when he was finished, when right before he, he died, he said, it is finished. The payment for sin was complete. And there's nothing more you can add to that. In fact, to be saved, to receive forgiveness for your sin, you must believe in what has already been paid for. You must receive what has already been given. And I wonder today if there's someone who could say, yes, I've never done that. I'm, I've been trying to make my own way to heaven. I've been trying to do things my own way. I've never received what Jesus gave me in salvation. And I, I need to do that. If that's, if that's so, I'd love to meet with you or have someone talk with you and open a Bible and share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. How you can know for certain today, the Bible says you can know that you have eternal life. And this knowledge of eternal life is something all of you need. If you don't know Christ, my friend, today, make that today. Write it on the back of your blue card. Say, I need to talk to someone about this. Or grab me after the service. I'll be at the back and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you. I need to know for certain that I have eternal life according to the Scripture. Friend, if you feel outnumbered, if you're a Christian, you feel outnumbered, I hope this can be an encouragement to you today. You can keep moving forward knowing Christ has a plan, and He is there, and He has not forgotten about you. Father, pray your blessings on each person as we have gathered. I pray that we would be obedient to you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.